we are delighted about that. I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to think about, uh, Emma Jane asked me when we came in, what are you going to talk about? And I said, grow up, and she looked a wee bit offended, no, <laughs> but um, we are, we're going to look at what it means to mature and to grow. Ephesians 4 verse 14 Well, actually, let me read from verse 11, where we're told after Christ ascended, Ephesians 4, verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then... We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I'm going to look especially at verses 14 to 16. Uh, the idea of how we grow as a body, how we grow as a church, how we grow individually and collectively. Now, what I want to do is to ask, first of all, what the immature Christian is. None of us wants to be an immature Christian. And actually, that may not be strictly true. There may be some of you who are not sure if you're Christians and you'd quite like to be one. Uh, in that case, talk to me afterwards. There's nothing more important. But those of us who are Christians, I think we like to think of ourselves or we'd like to be seen as mature. Now, here's a, a problem because <clears throat> we are told by Jesus that we are to receive the kingdom of God like a child. We are to be childlike in our humility and our innocence. But Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3 and 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20 says, in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. The immature Christian is somebody who is largely ignorant and often unstable. There's a gullibility about children. I like just saying stupid things off the top of my head. And you have to be careful that you don't do that with children because they believe you. So there's one child who's still scared to talk to me because when I came into her house, she said, you better watch out because I like eating children. And uh, just automatically believe that. Well, sometimes as Christians, we can be incredibly gullible. Sometimes uh, people will walk in the door here and, and they'll say, can you give me 50p for my bus home? To which my response is, you're not going far. Um, home can't be too far. You can walk to it, no problem. But also, what they do is they'll say, what would Jesus do? One time, uh, I was minister up in Broda, and one time I went to bed relatively early. Those were in days when I was not eligible to join the seniors group here. And uh, I went to bed about midnight, and Annabelle was still up, and the doorbell rang. And this guy came to the door, his name... His nickname, everyone had a nickname in the Highlands, was Baba Scon. Now, Baba Scon at one point had attempted to firebomb the manse. Um, he was quite a notorious guy. And can you imagine, you know, you think nice, cute Highlands, 
And this guy got arrested with a petrol bomb, just about to throw it through our window. Well, it wasn't. It was the previous minister's window. Anyway, he turned up at the door, and Annabel didn't know him. And he said, I want to talk to the minister. And she said, it's midnight, he's in bed. And he looked at her and he went, she said, come back in the morning. And he looked at her and he said to her, is that what Jesus would say? Now, it's incredibly manipulative. And Annabel thought, do you know, all right. So she brought him in and until he sat there and started speaking about how he'd always wanted to stab someone, particularly someone very holy. And uh, so she came up and got me and I threw him out. Um, But that kind of manipulation, that occurs. But there's a more subtle manipulation that occurs. And I am sorry for mentioning this, but 90% of the time, if you watch God TV, you will see that people on God TV assume that you are stupid and really, really, really gullible. And Paul's saying, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to be gullible. There's maybe another way of putting it this way. Um, there's a woman who's writing me quite a lot just now and she's quite angry with me because uh, maybe, maybe this was wrong of me, I'm not sure because she was going on about how she didn't believe in theology she just had faith in Jesus so I said I didn't believe her um, not quite as brutal as that but came very, very close she's saying, oh you just know if you just knew Jesus, you just and I said, well, I hope I do know Jesus, but how do we know Jesus? How do we find out about Jesus? And the argument goes like this. I want my faith to be simple and childlike. I don't need any theology. All I need to know is Jesus. And it just sounds so spiritual. First Corinthians 3, verse 1 says this. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Hebrews chapter 5 has the same kind of warning. Hebrews 5 and verse 13 says this. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant youth have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Well, there's Nathan sitting there reading his Bible, which is wonderful. Um, I'm assuming that Nathan has matured a wee bit and he's not just on milk and he's having some solid food. Is he nodding? Yeah. Good. My knowledge of childcare hasn't completely gone. You need solid. You love it. When you've got a baby, you love it when the child gets onto solids because they usually sleep a bit more. But what Paul is saying and what we're being warned about here is as Christians, we are far too easy to just fall into the trap of of spiritual immaturity. We need to grow. We, we, We don't want to be immature Christians. Another way of describing this is the immaturity is... People who are blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. We're very, very, very changeable. Unstable children are like little boats in a stormy sea, entirely at the mercy of wind and waves. Plato used the word that Paul uses here to speak of spinning tops. They just turn round and round and round, but they're eventually going to fall over. Immature Christians are people who never seem to know their own mind or come to settled convictions. 
They cannot resist the cunning of men. And the word there is dice playing, just taking chances, throwing dice. Doctrinal instability is a matter of immaturity. Now, this is not arguing for arrogance, and it's not arguing for a kind of know-it-all attitude, which is itself childish. It is a very immature child who would say, I know everything. As you grow and you mature, it's a sign of your maturity that you realize how little you know. But what he's asking for here is a mature understanding of the Christian faith, which enables us to withstand all the assaults of the evil one. And we really, really do need that. People, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, how he uh, and his people who are with him says, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Well, there are so many ways in which people use the Bible as the devil used the Bible to exploit and to attack. And if you don't know God's word, and if you're, you don't know your faith, and you don't grow in your Christian faith, then the first wave that comes, you'll just be blown apart. It's like uh, some of our lives are like sand castles, castles in the sand. They look absolutely fabulous, but when the tide comes, the tide just washes them away. At an overall level, I believe in this country that the church didn't really begin to decline numerically until the 1960s. And that's when it got hit by the tide of materialism, by um, the new teaching. It wasn't that new, but it was new in terms of culture, in terms of sex and so on, and by an anti-authoritarianism and many other things. And the church got hit by those things. And in my mind, the church just folded because... The church in Scotland was very immature in terms of the word of God. And you have no hope. You will go away from this building. You may leave this church at some point. You may head off to different pastures. And your faith comes under sustained attack for the first time. And if you haven't matured as a Christian, you will be blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their scheming. So we don't want to be immature Christians. We want to be mature Christians. What is that? How does that work? Well, Paul switches the analogy now. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, will all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, I realize in the present company, I have to be incredibly careful because my medical knowledge is probably not even a tenth of what yours is. But I'll hopefully get this right. And if I get it wrong, you can critique me. I realized as I read this, I have no idea what a ligament is. But anyway, you can tell us at some point. He talks about how the human uh, body works. And it's interesting, he uses medical terms. He takes the medical textbook from Nine Wells, actually from Greece, and particularly writers like Hippocrates and Galen. And he uh, takes these on board and brings them into this, this teaching about the body of Christ and about a mature church. 
In Colossians 4 verse 14, he refers to the beloved physician, which is Luke. And maybe uh, Paul was like me. He needed somebody like Luke, a medic, to tell him what these terms meant. Anyway, he learned and he, he uses them here. And he uses them to describe what a mature Christian is. Mature Christian is this. Somebody who speaks the truth in love. Literally, truthing in love. Speaking is the way that we translate it here. That's probably not the best way to translate it. Because it's not just about speech. It's about maintaining, living, and doing the truth. The truth is vital. We live in a culture where people are really scared about people who claim to have the truth. I did a debate with an American philosophy professor once, and he stood up and he said, every time I hear someone speak of the truth, I want to reach for my gun. That's only an American philosophy professor could have said that, but I want to reach for my gun. And what he meant by that was, I get really scared about someone speaking about the truth. So I asked him, is that the truth? He, He said, you're not going to get me that way. And I said, well, I already have. Because you, you either believe that's true or it's not true. But he, his, his view is very, very, very common. Don't speak about truth because it sounds incredibly arrogant. Brian walked a really fine line this morning. He walked it well. He walked a really fine line. Because in our culture and in our context, it is very easy when you're talking about standing for truth and upholding the truth and living for the truth that you come across as arrogant, self-righteous, pretentious, people who are, who are kind of going around and, and saying, you know, I know the truth, you don't know the truth. And I've come across, and it's so sad, so many Christian leaders and so many um, churches, inverted commas, and so many Christians who get confused by this because they're immature, who, oh, I, I, I want to be open I want to, you know, I I don't want to accept this thing, such a thing as truth. Now, the most ridiculous, and in fact, I've held back on this. I'm going to post this up on Facebook. And if you're not my Facebook friend, why not? And if you are, just have a look at it tomorrow and you'll see this. It is um, from the BBC's program, The Big Questions. And it's an Anglican vicar who states absolutely, categorically, he does not believe in God. Now, not even, not the God of the Bible, not just no God. There is no God. And he's a vicar. Now, it is extraordinary how many people will say, well, I mean, a man wrote me because I'd critique this a little bit. And he said, well, David, I'm sure that many people have been led to faith through his honest doubt. And we have a good Scots word for my reaction to that, which is bulk. It was just, it was unbelievable. Honest doubt. He's taking his living from preaching, inverted commas, the word of God. A God who he says doesn't exist. That's not honest doubt. Truth is essential. Truth is vital. We are called for Christ, as Christians to search for the truth, to understand the truth, and to communicate the truth. Now be careful. There are heresy hunters who love a good fight. Thank God for people who stand up for the truth, but watch out for those who do so in the wrong spirit. I find it bizarre when I go and speak in a lot of non-Christian contexts that always the most bampot question will come from a Christian who's trying to prove that you're a heretic. And it, you, you, where, where do you people come from? How does this work? 
Christians can question, Christians can ask things, and we must question, we must ask things. But when we stand up for the truth, we have to make sure that we do it in the right spirit. On the other hand, I know there are people who say, well, I'm really into love, but sometimes it's at the expense of truth. Someone wrote this I thought was really helpful. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of truth. We speak the truth in love. We truth it in love. We then grow up into the head that is Christ. I do kind of hate it when someone says, uh, brother, I want to tell you the truth in love because I know I'm going to get it right between the eyes and I'm not convinced about the love part of it. You don't really need to say that if you are telling the truth in love. On the other hand, there's this wonderful preacher called Dick Lucas. Now, I met Dick this week. Dick's like superhero of Anglican evangelicals. I've slagged off one Anglican, but Dick is just a fantastic Anglican. And he was across in Glasgow last week and I was, I was across there I was speaking to him, and he's such a lovely man. I mean, he's like really, really old, uh, older than Hugh. He's really, he's in his 80s, and uh, he's just, he's su- just such a godly man. Now, I think he's got so old, he doesn't care anymore what people think of him in terms of his career and so on. So he just speaks the truth all the time, and it is so funny. He was on a panel, and he was being interviewed by this minister, and the minister said, uh, Brother, do you have uh, any words of wisdom to tell us how we preach on the roles of men and women and so on? And he went, no, no, I have nothing to say to that. I said, but well, you've got years of experience. No, no, I don't think I could help you at all. You can work it out for yourselves. And it was just great. He just, and he kept speaking like that. He just, it was just straight out and out truth. In one of the um, seminars he did, he asked a particularly well-known Scottish minister. <laughs> he asked him, he said, now, brother, would you like to tell us something about Naaman? And the minister started speaking, and Dick Lucas intervened. No, 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 enough. Would someone else like to tell us something about Naaman, please? <laughs> and, it's just, and he gets away with it. He's, 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 he's warm, and he's gracious, and he's lovely, and he, he speaks the truth. And it just really, really helps. He came up to me, actually, and, and he said, Brother, it's so good to see you, he said. I, I'm, I'm almost weeping almost weeping that you're still here with us. And then he started telling me some wonderful home truths which were really helpful. That's what you need. You need somebody who loves you enough to tell you the truth. Okay, Let, I'm going to give you an example which is a kind of, it's not a very good one at one level, but you will all understand it, which is why I'm telling it to you. Imagine that somebody, one of your friends, has a particular problem with BO. What are you, body odor, for those of you who don't know. What do you, what do you do? I mean, who's going to go and say to them, excuse me, um, would a deodorant help? Or how do you do that? How can, um, I once had someone do that to me. I thought it was hilarious because I was been really sweating. I was really hot and everything. And they came up to me and they suggested a particular kind of perspirant, which I thought was wonderful. I mean, everyone else thinks it probably, but nobody says it to you. Well, there's a sense in which what Paul is saying here is, do you know someone in the church who's maybe really struggling with one or two things, or maybe their behavior is a bit obnoxious? Or How do you tell them the truth in love? How can you do that? 
We need to be able to speak the truth in love. A mature Christian is someone who genuinely can do that. We're not speaking the truth out of frustration and anger, trying to hurt someone. We're not pouring out our anxieties and concerns. But we're speaking the truth because we genuinely love the people that we are speaking to. A mature Christian is also someone who grows and is connected to Jesus, who himself is full of grace and truth, and is someone who's connected to other Christians. That's the context here. You cannot grow on your own. The lady I'm arguing with this week, uh, arguing, sorry, having a truthful and constructive dialogue with this week, is um, she said, God led me, told me to leave the institutional church. Now, there's so many code words, even in that one short sentence. You can't argue with her because God has told her you're arguing with God. The institutional church, by definition, is a bad thing, though what that is, she doesn't explain. But the really, really sad thing about that is somebody thinks, I can make it on my own. You can't. Now, please don't be too shocked at this. I, I, will, I will confess, I cannot make it on my own. I just can't. I'm not strong enough. I'm not mature enough. I don't know enough. I can't grow on my own. The only maturing that takes place is in the context of a body that grows, a body of believers that are joined and knit together. The thing that unites us together is Christ. Each of us has our own unique part in the body of Christ, whilst at the same time being coordinated with every other part. You are fully aware that I am... I have no fashion sense whatsoever. Uh, I was coming out to the wedding yesterday, and I said to Annabelle, will this shirt do? And I thought we were going to get divorced at that point. What? You can't go out dressed like that. Well, I had no idea the colors clashed. I mean, how do colors clash? Who knows? But apparently they do. And there are people who know these things. Usually you're married to them. And it's, it's, it's fine. That's great. In the Christian church... There isn't clashing colors, if you like. There is harmony. There's connectivity. We grow. That's what happens. I'm not the world's biggest fan of strategy plans and so on. I, I quite like them but at one level, but at another level, I don't know. How do you make a plan for growth in the church? Risto and Leanne were with us this morning, and uh, they were up this afternoon, and they're saying, Wow, St. Peter's has grown. How did that happen? I have no idea. I genuinely have no idea. Except to say God, and I really mean that, the Spirit, lots of different circumstances that he works through. When you're a, a young child, become a teenager, you seem to outgrow, you buy your shoes. Buy your shoes. You buy your children's shoes that that are supposed to last. And what's the point of having shoes that last for two years when they're child shoes? Because their feet keep growing. And you, you almost want to say, stop growing. But it's kind of a natural thing, obviously. How does a child grow? By doing the normal things. By looking after ourselves, by eating, by drinking, by resting. How do we grow as Christians? By doing the normal things. Here's another problem in our culture. There are far too many Christians who have the idea of miracle grow. They think if I go to this conference or that convention or have that experience, whoosh, that'll be me, super saint. But it's not how it works. 
Maturity comes as we grow and as we develop together. Now, please note also that maturity is not just knowledge. It includes the ability to relate well to others and to support one another. The result is body growth. The whole body, joined held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. How can I mature? Well, the unity of the faith, he says, the knowledge of the Son of God. How does that come about? Through God's people, the church, through the teaching and application of the scriptures as we do this together. One of the things I love about the fellowship groups, but not just the fellowship groups, when we have a meal together and things like that, is we teach and we learn from one another. Obviously, as a preacher, I think there's a great role for preaching. But it's not the only way that truth is communicated. And standing up here is not the only form of preaching that there is either. We communicate and we share with one another. I love the fellowship groups because I learn a lot from the fellowship groups. Now we need to, to, to grow together in learning the scriptures. I do wrestle. There are the questions as you go on that you wrestle with. I wrestle with things like, you know, why bother going out on a Wednesday evening or a Sunday evening? It's funny how Sunday morning is always kind of sacrosanct, but, but why the others? And sometimes you wrestle with those things. And, you know, I can think of several reasons, but I think the main one for me is just simply this. I want to grow as a Christian, and I want to grow in community and unless you're all going to come to my house or I'm going to come to your house at six in the morning for a prayer breakfast and Bible study, um, when else? I just think it is really, really important. Now, John Stott, when he speaks about this passage, sees different models of the church. And I want to apply this to us as a congregation. And then I'm going to ask us to pray for something. Stott says that some look for structures of unity. But do not look for the relational, caring community marked by humility, meekness, long-suffering, and love. In other words, you could have the right structures, but without the right character, it, it does, it's not going to work. Others lay great stress on the theological view of the church, but do not see anything wrong with a, with a visible disunity which contradicts their theology. Others are content with the uniformity of church life and liturgy, which is dull, boring, colorless, monotonous, and dead. I know some of you occasionally feel a wee bit guilty when you come to a church service and you go, oh, it's just so lifeless and so dull and so dead and so boring. Please don't feel guilty about that because if it was lifeless, dull, dead, and boring, that's awful. We need to change that. On the other hand, if you're lifeless, dull, dead, and boring, that's also too. Uh, and we are, we are the church. We all need to change. People sometimes don't see the variety of body ministry there can be. Others still have a static view of the church and are satisfied if the congregation manages to maintain itself. You're constantly trying just to keep things the way they are and hold on to what we've got and so on. They have no vision of church growth, either by evangelistic outreach or by the Christian maturing of the membership of the church. And again, that goes so much against what Paul is saying. 
We have to grow and develop and reach out. I think it's stunning. I mean, maybe you don't feel that same sense of stunning because it's not, for me, it's not about the numbers, but I think it's stunning that every single Sunday that I've been here anyway this, this year, every single Sunday, there's been someone new in church. And often there are people who are not Christians. This morning, a couple of people came up and spoke and just said, we're looking, we're seeking, we want to know more. That's what we want. But also, we want Christians like ourselves who want to grow and develop. In this sense, let me say this. No one is serious about spiritual growth if they keep on flitting from one church to another. It's not to say that you never change churches. I'd be a hypocrite if I said that. And I don't think the scripture does say that. But it is to say, don't hang loose. How do you want community and the body of Christ if you're not prepared to to be involved and to love and to share? And be careful about restricting yourselves to aspects of church life which appeal to you. Oh, I'll come for this because I like that. Come for that because I like that. Now, it's not, I'm not talking about people constantly coming to meetings all the time. But, you know, we can be limited in friendships. We can be poor in hospitality. We can be people who is always me first, me first. I like this. I like this. I like this. Somebody once said to me, David, why should I come? And I said, well, because it encourages me personally. It encourages other people to see you there. And they were so amazed by the answer, not because of his brilliance and wisdom, because it's just straight from the Bible, but because they'd asked, why should I come? What am I going to get from this? And our attitude should always be, what are we going to give? To live a life worthy of the Lord is to live a life amongst his people. Now, Paul is going to go on as we'll look to consider living in the workplace and the family. But he begins with the church because that is where we get our maturity and growth from. He does use the word for ligament, every supporting ligament. As I said, I'm not sure what that is, but I'm told it's pretty important. All of the parts are vital and essential. Every member of the church is gifted by the Spirit and is called by the Holy Spirit to participate in the ministry. R.C. Sproul says, no one is insignificant. No one is unimportant. There is no such thing as a misfit in the body of Christ because Christ himself, the head of the body, is the one who makes sure that we fit together and knit together in the unity of his body. And that is what we are looking for as a fellowship. That is what we're looking for in this church. We teach the Bible not to give you a checklist of doctrinal things so that you can work out who's sound and who is not. We teach God's word to prepare you for works of service so that the whole body may be built up. And that's absolutely what we need. We're gonna, we will be hit by many, many, many storms. And not the structures, nor the liturgies, nor the traditions of the church will help us grow or will save us or help us grow. But what will be is as we are connected to Christ and we truth it in love to one another, we speak the truth in love to one another, that we grow up as 
Christians. We are supported and held together by everyone else. And it is a tremendous model of community. We, each part grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I would really, really like to commend uh, and say how grateful I am for the congregation here um, over the past wee while in lots of ways, but maybe this weekend especially. It's been a really, really tough weekend at one level. The wedding was fantastic um, and the meal today and so on. But let me tell you the difference between the congregation now and the congregation 10 years ago, 15 years ago. The difference is this. I came into Chris and said, Chris, maybe you better tell people to help with tidying up and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and Chris just said, I think they're doing it. And it was true. People were doing it. People were just taking part. I mean, shifting all these chairs out yet again, putting them back again, doing all that. Um, I was amused at Naomi because her, her sister told me it's completely out of character for her. I've never seen such a military-run operations, wedding, wedding style, everything. I mean, we've got, we got sheets of paper which tell us, do this at this point, at this point, at this point, at this point. It was fantastic, though, because it worked. Because everyone did their part. Take that as an analogy of what's going on in the church here. That as we each play our part... None of us are superstars, but all of us together are the body of Christ. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.